Good morning. We've got two readings this morning. The first one is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 8 and we're starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Simone, and I'll add my welcome to those who have come before me. Hello! I want you to imagine you are working for a mission agency, maybe one like our fantastic partner, Open Doors, and you're serving the persecuted church, and you have this mission, which this is a real thing that happens, there is a church and they don't have the scriptures, and your job is to smuggle in some scripture to them, and you can only take one chapter of the whole Bible. I wonder what you'd take. Maybe you can discuss that over morning tea, but I'm quite sure I'd take Romans 8. Romans 8, as we've just heard, is the passage I would smuggle in, or if I'm on a deserted island by myself and I can only take one chapter of the Bible, I'm taking Romans 8. It's filled with so much. But most importantly, Romans 8, I think, captures our big idea for this morning, and that is that the gospel is your map to hope. The gospel is your map to hope. Romans 8 understands where we're at, understands where we're going, and understands what God has done and gives us the perfect map that we might have hope. Let me show you the Jesus map, which you are now quite familiar with if you've been here the last few weeks, and how Romans 8 articulates the Jesus map. Now, we didn't start from the very beginning, but if we had, we would have read, which I commend to you is worth having as a memory verse, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need that tattooed on your body somewhere or at least written in your heart and mind because when the evil one starts to accuse, what a wonderful thing to remind yourself and have the Spirit remind you of and what a wonderful thing to offer to others. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now, every good Bible reader sees a therefore and asks... What's the therefore, therefore? Cheesy, I know, but helpful tool. The therefore is there because from Romans 3.21 up to the end of Romans 7, we've had this great articulation of something that's happened already, that Jesus has won the victory. 
that Jesus has atoned for sin, that we have peace with God, that we know God's grace and that we are justified. So Romans 8 tells us something about the then, that Jesus has done a work by his death, resurrection and ascension to mean that now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, such an honest piece of scripture and articulates so well the time we live in now because it doesn't try to diminish that there is suffering now, that everything's not quite right. My background is in sales. Uh, I was taught by skilled salespeople rather than to discount, and you're like, oh, but I want a discount. No, you don't. You want value. To build value rather than to simply discount. So you know what I hate? When I go to buy something and someone tells me the price is only $50, I think, don't you tell me the value of $50 to me. I don't like you to tell me that it's only $50. If it's only $50, then you pay for it. <laughs> it's my $50, and I don't think it's only $50. What you can do is tell me how worth my while giving you my $50 is for your exceedingly good product. Tell me the features, the advantages, and the benefits, and tell me how it'll make my life better, and how I'll come back to thank you and send my friends as well. That's enough about selling. I love that as Paul speaks here in verse 18, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. At no point does he say, because the sufferings aren't that bad. He doesn't say that. This is a man who bears the marks of Christ on his body. He's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked. And he says, even that worst of things, some of my friends have been killed. He doesn't say, oh, it's not really a big deal, is it? He says, no, let me tell you the value. Even though we suffer now, it's not worth comparing. This cost is not worth comparing with the eternal value that awaits us. So take heart, Christian, and keep pressing on. And in this space of the now time, Romans 8 gives us this great assurance that teaches us how we're held in Christ, that God in his sovereignty foreknew us. And those he foreknew, this is verse 30, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. That is, he has declared righteous or justified just as if I never sinned. And those are the ones that he will glorify. So we get this beautiful picture of even in your suffering now, you're held by Christ. And held by Christ, live with anticipation because verse 21 tells us what we've been learning through this whole series, that there is an end time glory to come where not just will I be rescued from hell for heaven, but the whole of creation which is in bondage to decay with its earthquakes and famines and problems and calamities, that will also be liberated. There's a new creation to come and you'll be part of the new creation. That's the later. And so Romans 8 does an exceedingly good job of just laying out the Jesus map beautifully and clearly for us. Now you might be asking yourself, why has Shane been so obsessed with this Jesus map through the Finding Hope series? To explain this to you, I want to take you back to, well, maybe we should all go to kids ministry this morning uh, because it looks a little bit like this. That's what my colouring looked like as a kid, and that's sometimes what our theology can look like. Is that good colouring? No, I can't give you a scratch and sniff sticker for that. I can't give you a smiley stamp for that. That colouring needs a little bit of work. Sometimes our theology can look like this. 
intentionally in this series, we have visited some of the colorful passages, the Matthew 24s, the Second Thessalonians 2, Revelation, Daniel 12, these sorts of places. But we start and finish with Colossians 1 and Romans 8. You see, when you color outside of the lines, you get mess. When you don't color at all, your picture can be bland. God's given us a beautiful thing where he says, here, let me draw the lines for you very neatly with passages like Colossians 1 and Romans 8. They lay out a Jesus map for you that'll show you what I'm doing as I bring you to salvation. And those are the lines. He then gives us these amazingly colorful and tricky passages which bring the expression and the color. The trick is when you're interpreting scripture, go to the simple stuff to find your line. Don't become intoxicated by the tricky, colourful stuff and go, oh, that's how it all works. No, that brings the colour, always colour, within the lines. Hence, we have a Jesus map to help us know what's going on. And I've got to confess, I might have got some things wrong. (gasps) Shock horror. I won't go to hell for it. It's okay. We're all within the Jesus map. We're all within the Jesus lines. But it's possible I'm wrong on how some of these passages work. You can read books that might suggest that I am. I don't think I am. But it could be. What's most important when you're interpreting is let Scripture interpret Scripture and let the clear stuff draw the lines and then colour within the lines. Make sense? Great, you all graduate from kids' ministry. Let's get into some grown-up stuff. Because the Jesus map in Romans 8 helps us really work out what's going on. So here's a bit of a map from Romans 8. We're told that because of what Jesus has done back then, there is no condemnation because of his death and resurrection. He's won the victory. We're told that in the now time, we should anticipate suffering with certainty. That is certainty of the suffering, but also certainty that something great is to come and that to come is later and it is glory. Now, my desire through this Finding Hope series was never to have us get bogged down in some of the details and wrestle out and kill more trees on obscure passages. My desire for us is to offer us a clear orientation that we don't get bogged down. And more than anything else, brothers and sisters, this was my prayer, to build anticipation in all of us that we might be a people of God who do not forget that there is a glory to come and who do not neglect to pray daily, come, Lord Jesus, come, because the best is yet to come. That's been my desire. I pray to God that as we study these scriptures, we might have gone some way to achieving that. This morning, my mission is to try and answer some questions. Thank you to everyone who sent the questions in. I'm only going to have time, and probably not even time, but I'm going to take the time, to do six of those questions. And I've divided them into some then questions, some now questions, and a later question. So let's jump in with two questions with regard to the the then kind of stuff. What has been done? Question number one. You ready? Am I by myself this morning? Are you ready? Yeah, you know I need it. You know I need it keep me going. Question one, the Revelation passage today, not today, but on the previous week, Revelation 21, talked about people being judged or excluded on their actions, murderers, etc. You can read about this in Revelation 21, look at verses 6 to 8. How do you reconcile that with the idea of being saved by grace and not works? What What a wonderful question to kick us off. 
in Revelation 21 verses 6 to 8, we hear of those who are in the new creation with God and they are described as the ones who are victorious. What are they victorious over? They're victorious over sin and the sting of sin, which is death. How have they become victorious? Well, in the passage they're told it's an inheritance. It's something that's been given them. By who? The victorious one. The one who has won the battle. The Lord Jesus, seen in Revelation 19 as the rider in white, this is a picture of the resurrected Jesus, rather than the returning Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. The victorious one has given them the victory, which Paul celebrates in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. And so these people who are in this picture are saved by grace alone because they've been given a victory. Their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how they're there. But, and there is a but in verse 8, we're told there are some who will not be there. What do we do with that? Well, there's two things we do with that. The first is a question I thought that would be good for us to reflect on in the last week is not just so much what will the new creation be like, but what will I be like in the new creation? Brothers and sisters, you'll be perfected. Some of us have been murderers. Maybe not with our hands, but certainly with our hearts. Some of us are sexually immoral, maybe with hands or hearts, I don't know. We all have sin. But Jesus, by his victory, has declared you a saint. Former Archbishop Glenn Davies loved to remind us that the New Testament never calls Christians sinners, ever. It says you sin, calls you saints. So Jesus has given you this status because of his victory. In the new creation, you will be conformed perfectly to your status. And so in the new creation, there aren't murderers. There aren't unfaithful. There aren't cowards. There is no sexual immorality. And so we are perfected, saved by grace. What do we do with that now? I'll tell you what to do with that now. Make your calling sure. What does real faith look like? I've shared with you in previous weeks at least three elements. Faith in the right one, faith in Jesus and no one else. Faith that bears fruit or it's dead. And faith that endures to the end or it's failed. So if I walk with Jesus, the righteous one, and continue in my ways of murder and sexual immorality, cowardice and unfaithfulness, then I have to stop and say, Lord Jesus, restore to me faith in you that I might walk where you're walking. Saved by grace, received by faith. Saved by faith alone, but it's a faith that can never be alone. It changes us and will change us perfectly in the new creation. Always saved by grace. Question two, Matthew 24, one of my personal favorites. What about dual fulfillment for the abomination of desolation? Or triple, could the passage Matthew 24 be about the crucifixion and AD 70 and the return of Jesus? Don't these all relate to the gospel? Uh, I would have to say a resounding, yes, it could be. There are too many gifted and clever Christians who believe some version of this. At the same time, I don't think they're correct. So yes, it could be. It would be arrogant and a total lack of humility for me to say that it can't be. But I don't believe it is. Why? Well, I'll show you a few quick reasons. Firstly, I've contended that the abomination that causes desolation is exclusively a reference to the death of Jesus and the coming of the Son of Man is exclusively the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. 
Let's deal with this abomination thing and then we'll move on. Firstly, the context of the question is, hey, Jesus, what will be the sign that you are actually the king? Because we had a misfire the other day and we've seen your baptism, but still there's some contention. What will be the sign? Jesus has already said in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 12, there is only one sign, wicked generation. I'll give you nothing else but the sign of Jonah, my death and resurrection. For me, that's case closed, but we can continue on. In Matthew 24, Jesus also says, a game of Simon says, don't be fooled. You'll hear about wars and rumors of wars and nations against nations. Even when that's Rome against Israel, that's not the sign. Jesus has said in black and white, that's not the sign. In John's gospel, there's a reference to the destruction of the temple and John whispers across to us, Jesus isn't really interested in the temple. He's interested in his death and resurrection. Move on, folks. In the entirety of the New Testament, if we are talking about, and I should explain what is meant by dual fulfillment or triple, uh, think of Psalm 2. God's installed his king on his holy hill, fulfilled in David, fulfilled in Solomon, fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. There's an example of double and triple fulfillment. This is not an example of double or triple fulfillment. This is exclusively the death of Jesus. If this is the sign of Jesus being the Christ and the kingdom and an example of preaching the gospel, why is it never mentioned again in the New Testament? Paul never refers to the importance of the destruction of the temple in his letters. It's an irrelevance. Highly relevant to a people. Highly irrelevant to Jesus being declared the Christ. Highly irrelevant. Interpretation, if we read this passage literally, it simply doesn't work. You find yourself wrestling with the, so why is it tricky for pregnant women? And you try and find these sorts of problems in AD 70 where this language has precedent in the Old Testament as an example of the day of judgment that comes upon Jesus. Also, here's another problem. Jesus says with the destruction of the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. Well, that's a problem because you can go to Israel tomorrow and see the western wall of the temple still standing and see Orthodox Jews bending their bodies as they pray at those stones that are still stacked one on top of the other. So it hasn't happened. Furthermore, if this is the worst day in history, why has it happened three times? Solomon's temple, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Israel would restore the temple, destroyed and uh, contaminated by the Greek Antiochus Epiphanes. King Herod the Great would come along, renovate it, fix it up, and almost desecrate it in his fixing up, and then it would be destroyed again in AD 70. This is not a unique event. It simply falls short. So yes, it could be, but I don't think it is. The gospel is the map to hope. What is the sign that you can trust that Jesus is the king? He died and rose. The gospel, he is risen, is your map to hope. All right, we survived the then. Well, I think I survived the then. I'm ready to move on to the now. Are you ready to move on to the now? Yay! That's how we keep each other awake. All right, before we go to now, let's check in with a man who, if you've never read one of his books, you should. Graham Goldsworthy, in his book, The Gospel in Revelation, he says this, even world history cannot overwhelm us. He's saying the present sufferings don't destroy us. 
For the gospel has transferred the now into the day of Satan's overthrow. Satan is overthrown. He is overthrown. The binding of Satan does not imply that there is no evil or no conflict. Rather, it is an affirmation that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ and now permeates the world through the church as it preaches the gospel and lives by it. This is careful, important language for us to hold on to as a summary of the scriptures and the Jesus map as we go into these next three questions. Here we go. Oh, by the way, we're doing six questions this morning, so we're halfway, just about. I canned one of them, wouldn't take too long. Okay, question three. In Revelation, it seems to indicate that the man of lawlessness will kill many Christians, which seems to show that Satan has more power than just deception. It seems to fit in with other words used to describe the devil, which says he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. How does that fit in with the sheepdog on a leash analogy? Um, firstly, one of the things we, we should acknowledge is this question is a good question, but it does bring a number of different passages together. It could cause confusion, but I think we can proceed with a cautious line of best fit. We know the man of lawlessness is raised in 2 Thessalonians, but he's an agent of the underworld and the evil one, so very happy to go with uh, what is written here. Likewise, the idea of killing, stealing, and destroying, this comes from John, John's Gospel, John 10, and the thief, in contrast to the good shepherd. But I reckon a line of best fit is fine, and so I'm happy to go with the question uh, answer and say, look, this is all the agency of the evil one. How's it going to work? If you weren't here last week, I described uh, Satan as only having the capacity to lie. I should also say he has the capacity to accuse and to lie. And I gave you this analogy of him being like a sheepdog on a leash. A friend of mine was driving in the country. The sheep were all over the road. And he's trying to drive through, and the sheep won't budge. They, they feel like they have to stay there. Why won't these sheep move? Because there was a sheepdog barking at them, saying, Roof, 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 roof. I'm making you stay there, and I'll bite you if you move. They didn't realize the sheepdog was tied up. He couldn't have done anything to them except bark. But they believed his deception and therefore empowered him. And that's how it is for Satan. Satan, or the devil, which means the deceiver and the accuser, has no power to the Christian but to deceive and accuse. So how is he going to do all this killing, stealing, and destroying? which can happen, well, let me take you back to the beginning of the Bible where we met the serpent, maybe a precursor to the man of lawlessness as he ignored God's instruction and, in fact, accused God of not being straight with Adam and Eve and lied to Adam and Eve about the outcome of their eating. Now, what happened? They believed the lie. And on that day, though they remained animated, they surely died and were excluded from the garden. How does Satan kill, steal? By deceiving and accusing and being believed. Why can we say Satan is bound? Because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and truth always binds the lie. As Romans 8 tells us, Jesus and the Spirit are our intercessors who intercede for us when the Satan's accusations come. And so I want you to think about it like this. Think of a courtroom and you're on trial. So here you are on trial and the prosecuting attorney, his name is Satan or the devil. He tells some truth, he tells some lies, but it's all to accuse you. 
and he's got enough on you to make it stick. So there's your accuser, Shane Dirks, blah, 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 blah. There's some truth to that. But what he doesn't realize is I've got a defense attorney and his name is Jesus. And Jesus steps forward. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, uh, judge, jury, we've heard the accusations here. I want you to know I've paid for them, settled and done, released the prisoner. I'm justified, just as if I never sinned. Jesus' work on the cross, his truth, binds the accusation, binds the lie, and the judge sets me free, and the judge sets you free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The evil one is bound, bound by truth. We have a great lawyer. His name is Jesus, and he intercedes for us before the Father. And he paid our price at the cross. This is why the gospel is your map to hope. Let's try question four. Question four, the next coming of the Lord, regarding the next coming of the Lord, how does it compare with the comment of the st at the start of Revelation 4, where it says, after these things, i.e., if the big battle has happened, what battle is likely to occur between Revelation 4 and 21? Well, there's a problem with reading Revelation sometimes. One, it's tricky, and sometimes we forget about these beautiful lines that God has written for us. Let the gospel always be your map. Here's the first big error, reading Revelation. Sometimes people become intoxicated with the imagery and forget that Revelation is not separate to the gospel, and the same guy who wrote Revelation, John, wrote John's Gospel, and in John's Gospel, he said, it is done. The battle is won. The second error with reading Revelation is to assume that all of these things are yet to happen, where most of the things in Revelation have happened and are happening. This is simply John's apocalyptic Gospel with a bit about what's going to happen next. The next problem with reading Revelation is sometimes we read and we hear about all these sevens and we think first this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. It's a mistake. The way the literature works is it's, these things are happening, con happening concurrently. Right? So you don't have to go this, then this, then this, then this. The sevens happen together. So, how can we answer this question? Well, the big battle has happened. The Armageddon has taken place. Jesus is the white rider. He is the conquering victor over all things. This is what the Bible declares. So what kind of a battle can we expect? You can expect many, many little battles. For the big battle, the war is won. What are the little battles? The little battles is every time the gospel is preached to someone who is still held by Satan, what Jesus once described as they're held by a strong man and it's going to take a stronger man to come, bind him and beat him up and take his stuff. Jesus is not a wuss from Nazareth. He's a strong man. He comes and he beats the snot out of Satan and he takes his stuff. That's my God. That's my Lord. He's not a lamb cuddler. He's a big, tough king. And after he's beaten the snot out of Satan at the cross, when his gospel is preached, that is the sword that we wield, that people might be rescued from the devil and Satan. And those little battles happen, those little spot battles. 
and they're a reflection of the great battle that he's already won. Every time someone comes to Christ, a little battle has been won. Every time someone comes to Christ, a little mini Pentecost takes place where the Holy Spirit comes to live and dwell in them. The gospel is the map to hope. Announcing he is risen is the map to hope. And so the only battles that happen are these little ones where we declare that the war is won. We are about to have the WMC, the World Missions Conference. Langdon, maybe we rebrand it for next year and call it the War Missions Conference. Because the war is won and we're announcing that victory to all nations that little battles might be won and the Lord Jesus might continue to fill heaven and empty hell. The gospel is your map to hope. Okay, the next question's got a little bit of a kick to it, but you're all grown-ups who survived children's ministry, so we're going to do it. Question five. If we are currently living in the millennium, how does that fit with all the abortion and transgender stuff going on? This is an important question, but it also caution when you ask a question, it's important the tone you set. But let's deal with this. The millennium is a concept that comes up in Revelation in around chapter 20. And there are different views about what it's about. One view is called post-millennialism. This is the idea that there'll be this age of a wonderful Christian era and ethic. Things will be sort of working right. And at the end of that, Jesus will return. There's another view that's called premillennialism. This is the idea, and I think it's based on a false understanding of Revelation 19, that Jesus will return, and at his return, there'll be a literal thousand years of things going well under him, and then comes the new creation. What I've commended to you in this series is a position called amillennialism. Amillennialism doesn't say there's a literal thousand years. It's simply a period, and it's a period that we are in now, a period of Christ's reign. How can we be confident that the period of Christ's reign has come? Because he beats sin and death. Now, in one of the clear parts of Scripture, well, sort of clear, 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the sting of sin is death and the last enemy to be defeated is death. Well, I know a guy called Jesus who beat them both. He's got no more battles to win. He has produced the sign of Jonah and he is Christ the Lord ascended and all authority has been given to me, he says. So he's won and he gives us the victory. And so his millennium has started a literal 1,000 years, but Christ's reign has started, hence he is a king with a kingdom. So the question asked, we're saying, well, how does that fit with abortion and trans issues? I need to speak to these briefly. We covered abortion intensely last year in our ethics series, and I refer you there if you want to learn some more. Let me give you a very quick summary. Whenever a viable pregnancy is terminated, we have a death. Whenever a viable pregnancy is terminated, we have moved outside of God's will and we sin. Whenever a viable pregnancy is terminated, it's wrong. It's not God's plan. What about transgenderism? Well, Romans 7 is very helpful. In a different way, Romans 7, Paul wrestles with not feeling right in his body. 
he's got a godly dysphoria of kinds where he says, look, I want to do these things, but I just can't master my body and make it, and I keep sinning. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In this now time, in different ways, with different challenges and different levels of seriousness, people don't feel at home in their body. And sometimes their gender identity and their body, in their mind, don't align. Here's the thing. All things will be put right in the end creation. When we race ahead of God's timeline, and when we change things that are certain in God's design, we've strayed from his way, and we've done wrong. So the question asker would like us to reconcile, how can we have a God who is reigning in Jesus and have these rebellious and particularly in the case of abortion, always tragic for everybody, events still happening. It's important at this point to understand what Christ's reign means. Christ's reign is the triumph of grace. Christ's reign is the era for forgiveness. Christ's reign is where grace has triumphed over condemnation. And Christ's reign is the space for all to come into the shadow of the cross and experience wonderful, glorious repentance. Without a God who says, I told you so, but a God says, I'm so glad you have come to me. There's not a problem you have that we can't deal with. No sinner, from you to me, no sinner, should settle for the foolish and satanic wisdom of today that seeks simple affirmation. To have someone tell you what God said is wrong, is now right, does not serve you. Fails to warn you of something that you can repent of and receive full forgiveness for. No sinner should settle for the foolishness of simple affirmation, or someone being their ally in sin. Every sinner, and let me be the first, should embrace the risen King of grace, who by his death on the cross and his rising to new life offers new beginnings to everybody who will come to him now because there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, there is a place to call home. And the gospel is the map that takes us there. Don't settle for foolish affirmation. It's a lie of the evil one that wants to see you destroyed. But the truth of the risen Jesus is one that wants to see you glorified. I have to say a little more. I want you to know if there's an abortion in the past for you, I'll say the same thing to you that I would to those who have lost little ones through things like miscarriage. God's a God of families. You walk with Jesus and have a great deal of certainty that you will meet your little one in glory. Do not despair, for your God holds you closely and he keeps his little ones safe. Stand firm, walk with him. I want you to know if you don't feel at home in your body for whatever reason, and even if you've taken steps, 
there's a fresh start with Jesus and at different levels all of us will walk imperfectly in our bodies until glory just walk with Jesus even if it's imperfectly but walk with Jesus repent come to him and he'll make all things new in the end all right we've got one last question Uh, I've skipped question six going straight to question seven because I don't even know how long we've been here Question seven, a little bit about later. Eden was perfect creation and heaven will be perfect. What is stopping heaven also deteriorating? Will we have free choice? Cheeky, because you've asked me two questions in one. Three things to talk about. Firstly, what do we mean by perfect? Uh, When the Bible talks about perfect, it's speaking about maturity. God blessed me with three gorgeous little babies, five fingers, five toes, as perfect as could be. Smell amazing. How could his baby smell? But they're going to grow. They're not done. They're going to grow in adulthood. And they're going to grow to be a new creation in in, in Jesus someday. Um, We can say of the garden that it was very good. I'd be careful about saying it was perfect. It was very good and according to God's design and set up for that trajectory. But here's the thing. When we talk about the new creation, we are not talking about going back to the garden. That's a mistake that is often said, oh, we're going to go back to the garden like Adam and Eve. I don't want to go back to the garden like Adam and Eve because I know God better than Adam knew God. And you know God better than Adam knew God. Why do I say that? Because Adam didn't know that God would die for him. Adam knew a gracious God who would create him and provide for him. You and I know the God who died for us and rose again for us and will bring us into a new creation. The God who lives in us by his Holy Spirit, we have a much more intimate relationship with God than the one who walked with him in the cool of the day. Can you believe that? And there's more to come. When Eden was created, we're told in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Now Jesus' map showed us there was a realm for God and a realm for creation. Where we are going is not back to this garden. We are going to a space where God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ and heaven and earth come together. And rather than a God who walks with you in the cool of the day, the language is he will dwell. His dwelling place will be with his people forever. This is difference. We are talking about a space where the finite earth comes together with the eternal. So what's stopping it also deteriorating? Well, what's stopping it is it's an eternal space. And part of the language of eternal is not just forever. The language communicated in eternal is incorruptibility. Why do we say you have eternal life now? You're like, oh, that's for when I don't know. It's for now. Because in Christ, you have been given a status of saints that can't be wrecked. So even though you and I will all sin by lunchtime, I'm sure, your status as saint of saints can't be wrecked. You've been given a life that is eternal and incorruptible. Just keep walking with Christ. So the new creation is better than the old creation because it's got people who know God like the old people didn't, and it's heaven and earth together. God's dwelling place is with his people. It's so much more than the garden, so much more. And the fact that it's eternal and together means that it will not deteriorate like the old one. Last part of the question, will we have free choice? No, and you never did, and you never will. Free choice and free will is a ridiculous, arrogant myth of humanity. Okay? You don't have it. You have creaturely choice. 
if I had free choice, I would turn myself bang right now into a centaur. Because centaurs have phenomenal male upper bodies and beautiful masculine horse bums, and I would love to look like that. Okay, that's the sick part of my brain. I want to be a centaur, and if I had free choice, that's what I'd be. But I don't. I have creaturely choice. And as a creature, I'm either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You have choice. And you will have choice. Here's the beauty. You'll be perfected in your values and yourself and you will only make good choice. A choice for God. A choice to dwell with Him. Brothers and sisters, thank you for participating in this series. It's been a joy to bring it to you. My prayer has been that we would be a people who would pray daily, come Lord Jesus, come. There are so many more questions I couldn't get to and so many more things you might think of. On the screen you'll see some resources. They are not exhaustive, but just some places where you might do some further study if you would like to. I should add to this list, because I mentioned the underworld and didn't do a whole lot with it, uh, Peter Bolt has a book, Living with the Underworld. I commend that to you as well. And so... We come to the end of finding hope and we remind ourselves, we remind ourselves of one thing. The gospel is our map to hope. The death and resurrection is our certainty. Know it, proclaim it, and live it. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus, Come. Amen.